Well, the title of my message this morning is, What Do You Think of God? Well, if we're proclaimed to be Christians, we go, Wow, we think a lot of God. He's Superman, the real one. What do you really think of God? You know, in our walk through the story that we're on, we're coming to an end of the period in the book of Judges, which was the period of the Judges. And if you remember talking about that time period, it was a period of like 330 years, and 111 of them, they were living in bondage because of their sin and turning away from God. It was a roller coaster time in the history of Israel. We talked about this cycle that they went through over and over and over again. The Lord would speak. They'd be obedient to him. Before long, they would get their eyes off of God and they would sin. And then the next thing that happens after sin that's not dealt with is oppression. We become oppressed. And in this case, God used enemies to oppress them. And then God would hear them as they would turn away from what they're doing and they would cry out to God. Short-term memory problems, these people. They would cry out to him and God would raise up a judge to be a deliverer and deliver his people. And then the cycle would start over. And this went on at least six different times, clearly we see in the scripture, where God rescued his people. They didn't get it. And we see towards the end of the book of Judges, in Judges 21, 21 verse 25, this part of a scripture that sadly could almost describe our culture in a lot of ways today. It says this, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, self became God and God got cast aside. A sad state that's going to bring about oppression. Six different times they went through this cycle and Israel didn't get it. And we can look at Israel and say, how could you not get it? But then if the Israel, if we could get somebody from 2,000 years ago and bring him into the present time, they could look at us and say, are you guys serious? Look at history. We're doing it again. Don't you get it? A few weeks ago, Peter shared about Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. And that story of Ruth and Naomi took place during the period of the judges during this period of, of roller coaster time of turning away and oppression and then repenting and re getting back in right standing with God. And it's interesting that God had to use or chose to use a Midianite girl named Ruth. Now the Midianites were part of that group of people that Israel was supposed to drive out. But God chose this Midianite woman named Ruth to demonstrate, even for us yet today as we read that book, the, what faithfulness really looks like. What it means to be faithful in spite of circumstances. Ruth was faithful. She was loyal. She remained pure. It took a Midianite to be called, show us and the people of Israel what it looked like to be called out, to be separate, to be different, to really represent a faithful follower of God. It took a foreigner. And then he showed us Boaz in that story. Boaz, as Peter showed you and taught you a few weeks ago, was a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer. And it's a picture again for us of God's upper story that we've been talking about in the story. Of God's desire to bring his people, you and me, 
and all of mankind back to himself, back to relationship with himself. From Genesis through Revelation, that's his upper story vision. That's his goal. That's what he's trying to do. And he used Boaz to, again, give us a snapshot in the history of Israel of a Redeemer. A small picture of Jesus coming as the Messiah hundreds of years later, not to redeem some land and not to redeem just a family of widows, but to redeem all of mankind. God was continually giving us glimpses of his upper story vision, his upper story plan. Even while down here in the lower story where we're living our lives out, Israel just keep messing it up over and over and over again. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 10 of the story, and I hope you're all keeping up with us in the book, The Story. I know so many of you have it, ordered it, and I hope you're reading it, because there's no way we can cover everything. We're up to the book of 1 Samuel in the story today. And we're going to look at five different people in the first part of the book of Samuel, and we're going to look at three different ways that I believe these people and their lives can reveal to us our true attitude or attitude towards God. So when I ask the question, what do you think of God? Well, most of us would have an answer, and it probably would sound good. They would have had an answer, and it probably would have sounded good. But we're going to look at what they did and how they acted and see what their true attitudes really, really were. And we're going to look at it in three different ways. One, the way that they treat other people has an impact or represents our attitude towards God. Two, how we really represent God. We are called to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We are called to be sanctified, set apart. We're called to be different, look different, be holy and righteous. Just like Israel was called to be set apart to be his chosen people so that the world would look at Israel as a nation and go, wow, how great must their God be. So we're going to look and see what attitudes can reveal there and how we represent God. And thirdly, rationalization. How we can see people rationalize actions and behaviors and how it really gives a clear demonstration of a person's attitude towards God. So first, the first one we're going to look at deals with how our treatment of others reveals our attitude towards God. And we're going to look at a couple of women that are introduced to us right away in the book of 1 Samuel. Their names are Peninnah and Hannah. Now Peninnah and Hannah, besides having the fact in common that they're both women, they have something else in common. They're both married to the same guy. They're married to a man named Elkanah. And these two women give a real contrast. If you looked in the natural, now remember this fact, in biblical times, if you were married and did not have children, could not have children, your womb was closed up, there was a stigma attached to that. That you're being punished by God or there's sin in your life. And children was an example of the blessings of God, the fruitfulness of the woman's womb. So we've got two women married to this man. And we have one woman, this uh, Penina, who's got children. And it looks like quite a few children. She's blessed of God. Her household looks full. And in contrast to her, we have Hannah. And the scripture says, Hannah's womb was closed up. The Lord had closed up her womb and she had no children. 
we have quite a contrast. Peninnah's home looks full and blessed because of all the children. Hannah's looks empty and barren because there are no children. And then we see something about these two women. And I'm going to read just a couple of verses in 1 Samuel chapter, or verses 5 through 7 in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And this, this is in the context of these scriptures, it's talking about when Elkanah would go and offer a sacrifice at the altar. And when you did that, you would take and give portions of the animal sacrificed to your wives and to your children. So you can imagine the scene. Here comes Elkanah to sacrifice, and he's got his, his Hannah, who's got no children at all. And then he's got Peninnah, who's got all these children. And he sacrifices. And here's what it says. And though he loved Hannah, he would give her only one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. So Peninnah would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Year after year, it was the same thing. Peninnah would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. So here we have a picture of two women. One looks like her house is full. One looks like their house is empty. But then we begin to see a picture of their hearts. And all of a sudden, now Peninnah with the house who appears to be full, we discover she's got an empty heart. Instead of thanking God and praising God and worshiping God for blessing her and having compassion and mercy for her sister who has no children, she was just plain mean. She would taunt her and make fun of her, throw it in her face. House looked full, but it's empty. The way she treated Hannah was revealing her attitude towards God. That is not how God would want a Peninnah to treat Hannah in any way. And then we look at the scripture and you think, okay, Hannah, how'd you get even with her? That'd be a lot of our attitude, wouldn't it? How am I going to get even with her? She could have threw it in her face because it gives us clear a picture that Elkanah, the husband, loved her best. But we see no indication of retaliation whatsoever. None. And it's interesting we note, we hear nothing notable about any of the children of Peninnah. And then we see the heart of Hannah as, as she goes and she's crying out to God. Worshiping God and crying out to God in her grief and her anguish thanking him and beseeching him in his mercy, by his grace, give me a child. She wasn't complaining. She was pleading with God in faith. And she must have been intently pleading with God because at the time the priest saw her and saw her lips moving, but he couldn't hear any words, so he accused her of being drunk. And she says, no, I'm just crying out to God. And she even told God, God, if you bless me with this child, I will give this child back to you to serve you all his life. And God answers her prayer. And she has a little boy named Samuel. And when he was old enough to be weaned, it tells us in the story that she was faithful and obedient to her commitment to God. And she took this little boy Samuel and took him to the temple and turned him over to the priests to serve God as a little tiny child, and he grew up in the temple. So we see a clear contrast between the hearts of these two people. One in the natural looked blessed, the other not. 
But their actions towards one another and towards God revealed what was in their heart. In Matthew 25, verse 37 through 40, our treatment of others also reveals our attitude towards God. How do we treat others? Jesus is in a discussion, and he's talking about how they have blessed him and that how others have not. And he says this, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did, you, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or naked and give you clothes? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. What's he saying? How you treat others is how you're treating me. How you treat others shows me the attitude that you have towards me. Boy, that can be a challenging thing when we do a self-inventory. How do we treat others is an attitude towards God. Our actions reveal that attitude. And so do our words. In Matthew 15, 18, it says, But the things that proceed out of your mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. Those things all come out of your mouth. The things that we do, our actions, and the words that we speak reveal our attitude of who we think God is. We learn that and we can see that in these two women's lives. Self-inventory. Sometimes it's painful, but it's always necessary. And the Holy Spirit will reveal those things to us as we ask. Show me those things. Show me those ways. Where my actions and my words are not aligned with what we say we believe. So treatment of others. Second, how we represent God reveals our attitude towards God. Here we're going to just look briefly at Eli and Samuel. Samuel was the little baby that Hannah was blessed with. And she took him to the temple when he was aged to be weaned. And he lived with Eli, the priest. Who is Eli? He's the priest and he's the judge over Israel. This is the guy who should have been keeping Israel on track. He is the guy who should have been getting the word of the Lord and speaking it to the people. He was the guy representing God. He was his judge. He was the priest. Samuel, on the other hand, is first is just this little boy, not much more than a toddler, in there with the priest. And then he grows. And he grows up. And we see some interesting things as you read this story. One of, the, one of the verses says this, During this time, God was silent, didn't speak much to his people. Well, if he was going to speak to his people, it probably would have been through Eli because he was the judge, he was the priest. But for whatever reason, he couldn't speak and didn't speak through Eli. And I think we'll see why in just a moment. And then there's Samuel, where it says with Eli, and during that time the Lord didn't speak much, when it comes to Samuel, he says, 
The word of the Lord never fell to the ground. Samuel's words never fell to the ground. Meaning, when Samuel heard the Lord and spoke, it always was true and it happened. Just the way the Lord said. So we've got Eli, who's supposed to be this representation of God, called out, separated, the priest and judge. And we have Samuel, son of Hannah and Elkanah. A young boy, a young man. Samuel was faithful. Even when he was a little boy, many of you might remember the story where he hears his name being called out in the night. Samuel. Samuel gets up and he runs to Eli the priest and says, Yes, here I am. What did you want? He does that three times. And Eli's saying, I didn't call you. I mean, Eli, he's pretty oblivious. He finally has enough sense after the third time to go, ah, maybe God's calling you, Samuel. Next time he calls you, say something, God, here I am. So as a young boy, he, he hears the, his name called and he says, yes, Lord. And the Lord speaks to Samuel. And he gives Samuel a pretty tough message for Eli and Eli's family. And Eli says to him, what did he say in Samuel's like, are you kidding me? I'm not delivering this. No. He speaks the word, and, and Eli knew it was the word of the Lord. We see a picture of Samuel being faithful, called out, separated, representing God. He heard the word of the Lord. He spoke it in truth. He was obedient and faithful to the word of the Lord. And then there was Eli. Eli had two sons, and they were priests also. Not only was Eli doing a very bad job of hearing God and running the nation of Israel, he failed miserably with his two sons. His two sons were eating the food sacrificed on altars that they weren't supposed to eat. And then at the gate of the tabernacle, the, inner, the outer court area where all these women were serving, these two guys were having sexual relationships with them as the priests. They were an abomination to God, yet they were supposed to be representing God. They were supposed to be separated, holy and righteous, representing God. And they failed miserably. In this, all of Israel recognized Samuel was a prophet and a judge. He spoke the truth. Those that were supposed to represent didn't. Those that it might not have been expected of did. The Bible is filled with examples, usually religious people, who use their religiosity as if it was supposed to get them some extra award or something. We see one example of this in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. Paul is going to rebuke a few of the, the Roman Jews. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter of the law. And his praise is not from men, but from God. What Paul is saying, get rid of your religious garbage. I'm not impressed. None of that makes you a Jew. We could paraphrase it and say all that other stuff, all those religious trimmings that we might use to try to represent us as Christians mean nothing. It's an inner working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. An inner working. 
our attitude towards both towards God and how we, we represent God is reflected in the way we present ourselves to man. I like this story. It's kind of cute, but it makes the point so well. There's a policeman, and he's sitting kind of at the intersection where there's a little bit of a traffic jam going on. And he's sitting back so that not everybody can see him, and he's watching the traffic just slowly move through this. And he, his eye is caught by this particular woman driving a van, and she's just going crazy. She's screaming, and she's yelling. She's honking her horn. She's trying to weave in and out of traffic. And he's watching this take place. And it just continues. And finally, she works her way through the intersection, and, and she's starting to drive away. And he sees the back of her van. And he pulls out, and he pulls her over, and stops her on the side of the road, and asks for her driver's license and her insurance. And, and she says, indignant, she says, why'd you stop me? I wasn't speeding. He says, well, I was reading your bumper stickers. I love Jesus. Jesus loves you. I saw the little fish symbol. And seeing all that, I knew your car had to be stolen because of the way you were behaving. <laughs> it's funny, but think about it. You know, we want to be the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We want the world to see that we're different. We are called out. We are separated ones. We are holy nation because of the blood of Christ, the sacrifice that he made, and us accepting the gift. We are supposed to go out there and be light and salt in the world. Sadly, a lot of the time when we draw people's attention, they're seeing a lady in a van screaming and hollering and maybe waving at you with the wrong finger with bumper stickers that say, I love Jesus and Jesus loves me and Jesus loves you or repent now or you're going to hell. Whatever the image is, we get the point. We are called to represent Christ. And the way we represent Him truly does reflect the attitude we really have in our heart towards God. What do you think of God? Who do you think He is? Does our life reveal that? So our treatment of others, the way we represent Him, and thirdly, rationalization. That's a big word. And I hate what it means. Anybody ever rationalize your behavior? Anybody ever rationalize the words that come out of your mouth? Even as you're trying to reach out and catch them before they get to the other person's ears. We see this in a man named Saul. As you get into the, the book of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, you'll see Saul. And he comes on the scene because God's chosen people decided they wanted a king. Really what they were saying is, we reject you, God, as king. We want to be like everybody else. And we want to have a king. See, doesn't that sound familiar? We want to be like everybody else. And Samuel, who was the, the judge and the prophet, says, what are you guys doing? He's trying to talk them out of it. He says, don't be thinking this way. If you get a king, this is all going to happen. And, and, and they just ignore him. And then God speaks to Samuel. And he says, Samuel, they've not rejected you. They've rejected me as their king. Israel wanted somebody else on the throne instead of God. 
Good thing we never do that, right? We never put anything else on the throne before God. And if you read the story, and I'm just going to pick out a couple little incidents, God in his mercy, grace, he gives him a king. When you read the story, if you haven't, you'll discover Saul was God's chosen guy. He told Samuel, go do this, go do this, and then anoint that guy. And man, and it says there's this crowd of people, and there stands this one guy. Can you imagine, imagine somebody standing, if everybody around me was about five foot two, and there I stood. And now use your imaginations here. Not only am I taller, I'm strong, well-built, no belly, and good look at Robert Redford, George Clooney, whoever. That was Saul. And it says, there he is. You almost can see the spotlight from heaven. And that's who God gave him. But he's, and God said, here's the warning. As long as you as a nation and Saul is your king, follow me. Observe my laws, observe my rules, and do it my way. You will be blessed. And Saul, your heritage will be kings forever. Didn't go so good. It started out great. Saul did a, yeah, he was following God and hearing from the prophet. And then all of a sudden, he decides to make himself a priest as well as the king. He was waiting for Samuel, and Samuel didn't get there quick enough. And he's ready to go to war. Man, we got we to sacrifice and hear God. So he takes it into his own hands, and he violates the word of God, and he sacrifices some animals as the priest. And no sooner does this get done than Samuel shows up and says, what did you do? You disobeyed God. Well, we were going to go to battle, and I needed to hear the Lord, so I just killed him to worship God. That's all we did. Really. No, what you did was you disobeyed the word of God. A little later in the story, it's time to go to war. They're going to go against the evil Philistines. Eli and sends his sons. His sons go to battle too. They're going to go out and they're going to take on the Philistines and they get their rear end kicked. And they come back in defeat. God's chosen people. This isn't supposed to happen. Then they have this brilliant revelation. We forgot our magic charm. The ark. We're supposed to take the ark. So they go and grab the ark and they go into battle against the Philistines again. The ark is not a magic good luck charm. The ark was the holy presence of God for the people. They didn't seek God. They didn't ask God. They didn't get direction for God. They decided to use Him as a good luck charm. You know, there's a scripture in, in Galatians that basically says you're going to sow what you reap. You're going to sow what you reap. There's consequences. Boy, were there consequences. The second battle to the Philistines. It's taking place and Eli the priest. And they make a real point to telling you now he's really fat because he's been violating and eating the wrong foods, just like his sons. And he's sitting at the gate where the judge would sit, and the battle's out there somewhere, and all of a sudden, here comes the person to report what's happened at the battle, and the guy says, Priest, Eli, you're not going to believe what's happened. Your sons are both dead. 
the ark has been stolen or taken by the Philistines, we lost the battle. Eli loses his balance, his chair falls over, and he breaks his neck and he's dead. They were supposed to be the representatives of God, a holy God. And Saul came on the scene as a king. And Saul rationalizes as a king. God says, go and destroy everything. If you remember in your history in the Bible, when they first left Egypt, there was this group of people that kind of came on the, the end of this long parade of the... You can imagine how long it was as Israel was leaving Egypt. And there were the Amalekites, and they tried to attack from behind all the time. They were just a, a, a real pain. And God says, it's been a few hundred years, but it's time to punish them. So he says, Saul, I want you to go out there and I want you to kill all the Amalekites. Kill all their livestock. Don't let anything survive. Got the word of the Lord. Saul goes. Wipe out the Amalekites. Well, almost. Decided to keep the king alive. And they decided, man, there's some pretty good sheep and lambs and goats here. And some of that other stuff looks pretty good. Maybe we should just keep some of it. And then Samuel the prophet shows up to King Saul and says, How'd it go? We destroyed, we wiped out the Amalekites. And Samuel, you can just, I can picture him in my mind looking at him and say, What's the bleeping of the sheep that I hear? And what's the king doing here? Rationalization. Right away, Saul says, well, we saved the best of what they had so we could bring them here and offer them to God in worship. God's pretty clear. Sacrifices and offerings aren't what interest Him. It's obedience that interests Him. Saul tried to rationalize his poor behavior. And really what it did, it showed us his true heart. He would let circumstances or his emotions or fear take over instead of the facts about who God was. How do we do when we do that self-inventory? When you look at these three, three different examples, there's a common thread that weaves its way through it. The first one with Hannah and Peninnah shows how we treat others. It reflects an attitude towards God. The second one with Samuel and Eli it illustrates to us how we represent God. You and I are called to be the representatives of Jesus Christ on earth today. Big calling. But the Holy Spirit lives in us. As we surrender to Him, we can do that. How do we represent Christ? And the third one with Saul shows rationalization. Man, we need to quit rationalizing our behavior. I mentioned it last week, how, how we look at the world and say, gee, we aren't so bad. Look how much worse they are. As I said last week, Wrong standard to compare ourselves to. We're to compare ourselves to Christ. That's the standard. And the Holy Spirit that lives in us is taking us slowly through a process of transforming us more and more to the image of Christ. A lot of bumps along the way. But that's where He's taking us. So the common, denominate, common denomin, denominator, there we go. The common denominator in all of this for us is this. No matter what you're doing, no matter what you're doing at work, driving your car, what you do in your business, talking with your kids, talking with your spouse, 
avoiding your kids, avoiding your spouse, talking about someone else, the giving of your time, giving of your finances, whatever it is you're doing, you're revealing two things at least. The first one is that you're revealing the condition of your heart. Whatever we do, we're revealing the condition of our heart. We're revealing who we think God is. The second thing we reveal is that personal attitude towards God. We can say whatever we want about what we think God is or who we think God is. He's king of the universe. He's a creator of all that exists and he's Lord of my life. Now, follow me around and see how long it takes for you to say, really? He's Lord of your life? Does it look like it? I'm not saying this to condemn any of us because we all mess up. But the point is, is that our heart's desire? Is that our heart's desire? To be more like Christ, to represent Christ to the world. You know, we are more transparent than we think. Now, we could be more transparent, but we are all more transparent than we think we are. People are watching. They're looking. Your family, your children, your spouse, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and the world. And of course, God. They're watching. And everything we do is revealing something about us. So we're more, it's more obvious than we think. You know, we are living out our, what this book, the story, calls our lore story experience here as human beings, as Christians. And in that, we are hoping to see God's upper story being manifested in our lives. His drawing people back to himself. And when we look at the scriptures, we see over and over and over again. You know, it doesn't matter how tall, good-looking, or muscular, or smart you are. We all need Jesus. Sin will find us out. Everything points to a Savior and to the cross. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that even by your Holy Spirit, you would continually remind us that we are walking, living billboards for Jesus Christ, your Son. Remind us, God, and keep it at the forefront of our mind that the way that we treat others, the way we represent you, the way we rationalize and justify our behavior, our words, all reveal our heart. God, convict us in those areas. Get us on the right track. Give us sensitive hearts to hear your Holy Spirit, to hear your voice. God, I pray that our worship is authentic, that it comes from hearts truly seeking and desiring you. And God, that we would come to you quickly when we stumble along the way when we get distracted by our circumstances, choices, when our emotions take over and we forget the truth about who you really are and what your promises are for us. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us daily as your temple and that we would be led by your Spirit. 
And Father, we ask the things knowing when this takes place in our lives, it will bring all glory and honor to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.